I find insurance commercials pretty compelling. Yes, at times they target our emotions and fears to get us to switch over to their company. You know, you can imagine, let's say, the middle-aged wife who's standing with her children next to a smashed-up car in the desert, and she doesn't know what to do. And yes, they overpromise. Think of the commercial when all of a sudden the insurance rep immediately appears out of nowhere. Bringing the much-needed help and relief, saying, "We've got you covered. You're in good hands." Nevertheless, most of us will probably get into some kind of auto accident where we will need help and relief. And it's a nice idea to know that someone will be with us every step of the way, and that we are in good hands. This is what our main character today, David, is coming to learn that he is in fact in good hands, and that someone is with him every single step. He can have confidence in the one who is with him. This we see in First Samuel chapters twenty-three to twenty-four. I invite you to turn there with me now. First Samuel chapter twenty-three to twenty-four. And if you are taking notes, I'll repeat this again. So just you can go ahead and flip there, and then you can take down this main point. But here it is: God's people are in His care, and nothing will stop Him from fulfilling His good purposes for them. I'll repeat that again: God's people are in His care, and nothing will stop Him from fulfilling His good purposes. For his people, we continue our series in the book of First Samuel, which of course concerns what we've gone over this so many times. You guys should know the answer. It concerns God's people transitioning to being ruled by an earthly king. God's people transitioning to being ruled by an earthly king. And just think in your head, who are the main characters of First and Second Samuel? First and Second Samuel, you guys should know this if you've been with us for a while here. The first we have Samuel. He's the priest of God in a very ungodly time. He seems to be like the only godly priest, and God uses him to anoint our next character to be king over Israel. And that man is Saul. So you have King Saul, the first king over Israel. He actually was a bad king, and so it, the book transitions to next the the second king of Israel, which is David. He's our third main character. You have Samuel, Saul, and then David, and we find ourselves today in the transition. Where David is moving towards becoming king, and it is a rough transition, because Saul, Israel's first king, because he refused to live underneath God's lordship, God says that He would tear the kingdom away from him, and then go and find himself another king. Eventually, this David is anointed for the task. David is a humble shepherd boy, a man after God's own heart. Now we have to realize. At this point in time, it is not public knowledge that David will, in fact, be the next king. I mean, here in the passage, but Saul does know that the kingdom will, in fact, go to somebody else. But he doesn't know who, and so he's on the lookout. Eventually, he realizes that this is going to be David because David has he has faith in God. He has the character of a man who ought to be. And the way First Samuel reads, people are coming to realize that David is this man. He is the one that God is using and will use to lead His people as the next king. 
First Samuel is written. It actually is very beautiful. So I pray that you, you know, would go home and take some time to read and see all the nuances that come out in the text as you get to know who God is, most importantly, as well as who are here who follow God. Saul cannot stand it, though. He can't stand the thought of losing the throne. Is he so consumed with manifesting his own dreams, living the life he would? As the king over his people. And so he stops at nothing to keep what he thinks he has, even if it means trying to kill David, if it means fighting God. But God has a plan for David. And David is learning our main point that God's people are in his care and nothing will stop him from fulfilling his good purposes for them. We see this in our passage today as God actively guides David. That's point number one. God actively guides David. God actively guides David. Point number one. In our chapters today, as well as in the chapters previously, David, remember, he's on the run from Saul. He's experiencing desperate times because he's being chased by the king of Israel. But praise God, his sov- he sovereignly and actively guides David to escape. In terms of the structure from in chapter 23, parallel accounts of David escaping Saul just in the nick of time. Two parallel accounts. In both accounts, people are ready to give up David to Saul. Right? They're going to sell him out, basically. In both accounts, David is seemingly trapped uh, facing the impossibility of escape. Right? It doesn't look by human accounts like he's going to get away. But yet in both accounts, praise God, David is delivered from the hand of Saul. You see those things in both accounts. And what ensures David's escape, even though the king of the land and his military might, his military intelligence is after him, what ensures David's escape is that the God over all, the king almighty, he is taking care of David with his guidance and power. As we go along the narrative, you'll see that you'll see Saul, the sovereign of the people, the king of the people. He's depending on all of his earthly intelligence. He's depending on all of his earthly resources, deploying them to get intel, intelligence, so that he could squash David. But yet he can't lay a finger on him. Why is that? Because he's nothing compared to the sovereign of the universe. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, maybe you're exploring Christianity. We Christians believe, as the Bible teaches, that God is sovereign. And this, his sovereignty is seen in so many different ways. Uh, he is, for example, the creator in Genesis chapter 1. He owns everything. He created everything. So he has creator rights over everything. And he cares for his creation. He creates not only, you know, uh, immaterial or, uh, I should say, inanimate objects, but he creates us as well. He creates us to be in a perfect relationship with him. And so there we see his sovereignty is displayed in creating us. We see, too, that he is sovereign in his righteousness. He's sovereign in his judgment. So in Genesis chapter 3, God's people rebelled against him. They turned away. They basically toppled over his throne in effort to lead themselves, to be king over our own selves. And God judges them. He brings the sentence of death and eternal judgment. Of course, this is treason. This sin is treason. So God judges them. We see his sovereignty there. But we also, thank the Lord, see his sovereign grace. We see his sovereign grace in granting the very ones who rebelled against him. He grants them pardon for those who repent of their sins and believe. 
He grants those who turn from their sin pardon, released from judgment. Instead of being judged, having God's face against them in wrath, he brings them into a loving relationship with him. So you see his sovereign grace and love there as he brings rebels back into relationship. He does all of this in Jesus Christ. And here we see his sovereign love. He sends his eternal son. In his sovereign power, God the Son enters into the created world and takes on himself flesh, right? Requires power to do that. Christ there, he goes on and lives underneath God's righteous law and becomes the perfect sacrifice. Jesus lays down his life sovereignly. He dies on the cross bearing the wrath and judgment that his people deserved. Three days later, we see God's sovereign power as God raises Jesus Christ from the dead, showing all that payment has been fulfilled and completed. Death is no more for those who turn from their sins. And now those who believe on him, they repent and believe. He sovereignly, once again, pardons them from their sins. He brings them into a restored relationship with him in and through Christ, by faith in him as God is making, according to his power, according to his sovereign plans, a new kingdom of people, where Christ is king and his rule is made known in our hearts. All of that is good news, that all by God's sovereign grace and mercy, he saves sinners from condemnation, all by his grace in Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you. I mean, whose hands would you rather be in? Your own? Are you sovereign? And even if you thought you were, are you sure you want to take care of yourself? Just review the last week and you see that you were unsuccessful in many different ways. Maybe even fighting off those desires that hound you that you actually don't want. But friends, God is sovereign. He regenerates. He saves. He gives us new hearts and new affections. He causes us to walk in his ways and to desire after him. And he sovereignly saves and pardons. Friends, repent of your sin and believe on him. If this is something that you want to talk more about, I'd be happy to talk to you. I'll, I'll be standing right at the back of the doors. Uh, we'd be happy to talk and walk through the Bible. We can walk through the Gospel of Mark and see who this Jesus is, if you're exploring Christianity. And uh, we'd be happy to open up the Word of God to see who God is according to His Word. In terms of our passage, the fact that God is sovereign and actively guides His people is clear from the very start. Look at 23 verses 1 to 5, and you can just go ahead and skim those verses. In an ironic fashion, even though David is on the run from Saul, he nevertheless nevertheless is doing what Saul should have been doing. He is protecting God's people from its enemies, from her enemies, that is the Philistines. David is doing what Saul should have been doing. The Philistines raid this town called Keilah, and it is David who steps up. And look what he does there in verse 2. David inquired of the Lord. What's interesting is that if we go back to when David first sort of was on the run from Saul in chapter 21, there's actually no report of David inquiring of the Lord. It's actually really interesting. If you guys remember back when we talked about that. We knew that he was desperate from the passage, chapter 21. He was being hunted by Saul. We know that he was afraid. The passage definitely speaks about that. And he's fearful enough that when he gets into Philistine territory, right, he's running away from Israel, running away from the king of Israel goes to Philistine territory, that he feels the need to be insane so that he can trick the king of um, the Philistines there to thinking that he is nothing but a madman, that he's actually not a threat. 
right? He, he's clearly afraid. And then in chapter 22, things become a little bit clearer that David relies on God's sovereign guidance. There, David seeks safety for his parents. Presumably, he doesn't want uh, Saul to find his parents and kill them. He goes to the king of Moab, and notice what he says there in 22, verse 3. Go to 22, verse 3. He tells the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. Okay, it's getting a little bit clear. David is learning. He's learning to depend on the sovereign guidance of God. And then guess what? Here in chapter 23, it gets a lot clearer. David really depends on the guidance of God. And in this section, David inquires of the Lord. If you look at 23 verses 1 to 5, David inquires of the Lord two times. He says there, should, should we go down to attack the Philistines and save Keilah? And he does so two times because after the first time God answers, you know, God says, yes. David's men, they kind of doubt, you know, they're sort of cowering. Ah, it's kind of too dangerous, David. I don't think we should go. And so David, maybe being a little bit unsure himself, inquires again. Should we do it? God says, yes. And then look at verse 5 to see what happens. And David when his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. I mean, that, that's encouraging there. David does what the king of Israel should be doing, defending the people from all their enemies and all the while depending on God and his guidance. God is sovereignly, actively guiding his people. But as the chapter goes on, there is even greater clarity. Look at verses 6 to 14. While in Keilah, you're in Keilah now, the word gets to Saul that David is there. By the way, if you don't have a Bible open, it's, this sermon is going to be kind of difficult here at First Baptist Church. We want to open our Bibles. So if you find yourself sitting next to somebody who uh, maybe be, is new to the Bible, just help them get here. Definitely want to be looking, pointing our eyes to the Word of God. While in Keilah, word goes to Saul that David is there. And look what happens in 23.8. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. This account is really quite riveting and exciting. Saul, with all of his men, goes to besiege little David. And even though David just defended Keilah from the Philistines, look what happens there in verse 7. Just back up, verse 7. Now it was told Saul, right? You see what's going on there? Presumably the leaders of the town are reporting to Saul, even though David just delivered them. They told Saul that David had come to Keilah. David does good, but still the people have sold him out. He is in a really bad spot. And it is confirmed by Saul's response. Look there in verse 8. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. We can imagine Saul, the powerful king, your average dictator king, with the entire kingdom at his disposal, ready to be deployed for his own vain glory. The people already fear him. You see that? The people already fear him. He's already killed all of the priests of Israel. He did, and then he went on to destroy the entire town of the priests of Israel, that is Nob, the city of Nob. So it's pretty understandable that the people of Keilah are ready to give up David. They know that if they are found to be helping David, Saul might kill them all too. So Saul has solid military intelligence, right? He has his men on the ground getting intel, the whereabouts of his enemy. How many are there? 
Let me know the second anything happens. All of that he has, he possesses in Keilah. And by all accounts, David is in an incredibly weak position. He has less men than Saul. He's in a positional disadvantage, being trapped in a gated city where the city, city's walls have basically barred him in. And so Saul boasts, God has given him into my hand. But get this. It isn't just Saul who has intel, right? David does too. We see this in a specific detail in verse 6. If you remember when Saul had all the priests killed, well, one of them actually escaped. His name is Abiathar. And look what the priest of God brings with him as he flees to David. Verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David, to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now, of course, we need to know what an ephod is, because if you don't know what it is, you're not really excited right here, right? About this awesome piece of intelligence that he's going to gain. What is significant about this is that the ephod was a priestly garment worn when going before the Lord to receive a word from the Lord. The point is not the ephod as if it's some sort of religious uh, relic to be worshipped. The point was everything that it symbolized. God was the designer of the ephod. God was the one that told his people to use it as they were to draw near to him and as God was to draw near to them to give them a word. You see the significance? Saul has all the intelligence he needs from the men on the ground. But David gets his intelligence from his God on high. What does David do? Verse 9. Go ahead and look at verse 9. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, not quite sure you know, how exactly they used the ephod. At the very least, they, uh, we know that they were to wear it. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. You see that there? He's sort of bearing the weight for what happened at Nob. He doesn't want the same thing to happen there at Keilah. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? He's asking a specific question. Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. God tells David that Saul will, in fact, pursue him, and that the people will, in fact, give him up to Saul. But yet, God guides him. That's the point there. Here again, God, uh, David is inquiring of God two times. Verse 13, then David and his men, look what happens, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could. The result is that Saul hears about David's escape, and then he gives up the expedition. It's seemingly impossible, the escape. But just in the nick of time, God answers. Just when we thought David was going to get crushed, God delivers. Despite Saul's power and military intelligence, David escapes. How? Why? Because God's sovereign will cannot be stopped. God has determined that Saul would, in fact, be king and is guiding his people to bring about his will. We see the same themes Again, in verses 19 to 29, this is the second account that parallels the first. And this one, too, is riveting. This one's going to move a little bit quicker here. After Keilah, David flees to the wilderness of Ziph. 
But there too, in verse 19, go ahead and look there. The people are prepared to hand David over. Look at 19 to 20. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hachilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. You look at Saul's reply here, verse 21. May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make it sure, know, and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Saul is determined. Go Make yet more sure. It's like he's saying, look, he escaped the first time, but this time I'm going to get him. I will search out all of Judah in order to crush him. So if you thought that the event in Keilah was close, this one was even closer. Saul and his men were pursuing David. You see that there in 25. And then you know what happens on, on this account. You look at 25 and 26. Now David, or the middle of 24, now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon, and Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. Isn't that interesting there? So you see what's happening. David is on one side. He was told that Saul is coming. David is on one side, Saul is on the other side, and they just miss each other. Of course, it's not stated here, but we know exactly what's going on and who is orchestrating all of these events. And the way that it reads, right, we really are to think that Saul is right on his tail. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. This is an impossible escape. You see what happens there in verse 27, though. A messenger came to Saul, saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. And right there, Saul has to give up his pursuit, just like earlier in the first account. Right when we thought that, Saul, that David was done for, David escapes. Again, despite the best of Saul's military intelligence, his capabilities, his strength, the strength of his army, David escapes. Why is this? Because God cannot be stopped. Clearly, David's faith is being refined through fire in these difficulties. We mentioned how David comes to know more and more that, our main point, that God's people are in his care and that nothing will stop God from fulfilling his purposes for his people. God will deliver. We saw that God guides according to his sovereignty. That was point number one. Now we see so clearly that God delivers. Point number two, God delivers. I mean, we've kind of seen it before, but now we're going to camp out on it a little bit more. You know who reminds David of this truth that God delivers? His brother-in-law, Jonathan. If you look at 23 verses 15 and 19, these words are right in the middle of the two parallel accounts, right? So we really want to draw the truths out right there. It helps us understand exactly what God's will is and why David ought to be confident in the Lord's hand, even while on the run, even in the suffering. Look at 15 to 19. And you see what happens there. Jonathan comes to David, and what does he tell them there in verse 17? 
in what must have been the, a wonderful burst of encouragement, Jonathan says, do not fear. For the, ha- for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. And I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. What Jonathan says here is a reflection of what God has already determined and what he is bringing to fulfillment by his sovereign power and decree. You, David, shall be king. You aren't yet now, but you will be. That's why Saul will not lay a hand on you. He's affirming everything that God has already told us. Of course, the way that 1 Samuel is written here, David is learning, he's experiencing, he's growing, he's being tested in his faith. Why is it that Saul, despite all of his might, all of his resources, could not get to David? Well, it's clearly because of God's will. God delivers. You see, it's actually really straightforward. Look at 23.14. God did not give David into Saul's hand. God delivers. That's why, despite all of Saul's military power, he can't touch David. Why is that? Because God didn't do it. God was the one preventing Saul from actually crushing him. Whether it be in Keilah, whether it be here on the mountain. It's an interesting phrase there in your reading of the passage. Did you notice all the talk about giving people over into your hands in 23.4 where David says, should we attack the Philistines, right? What does the sovereign God say? Look there, 23.4. God says, arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand to protect my people so that my plans would go ahead and move forward there. Contrast that with the supposed sovereign Saul in 23.7. When he hears David and his men are in that city, what does he boast? God has given him into my hand. So he thinks, right? So he declares. Saul is kind of nuts, right? He rejects God and his commands, but yet Saul feels so free to invoke the name of God. Despite boasting about what he thinks God is doing for him, God is actually, though, on David's side, protecting him bringing about God's good plans for David and his people, guiding them, working deliverance. Of course, in reading 1 Samuel, which is, once again, beautifully written, how are hearts and minds to think and feel in light of God's care, in light of God's guidance? Right? How are you to, to think and feel in light of God's guidance to you, in light of God's power that he is so revealed in the very power that he works towards you in Jesus Christ. Notice what our passage says Jonathan did for David. Do you see what Jonathan did for David, or at least how it's described there? In verse 16, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened David's hand in God. What a beautiful statement. In hearing these truths that Jonathan brings... David's courage, David's strength, and David's trust in God is strengthened there. What a blessing, therefore, that brothers and sisters are, brothers and sisters in the faith can actually be, right? Those who help us see God in all of His strength, in all of His power and sovereign providence, all in David's need. It's the context of brotherhood in the Lord where David and Jonathan find such great strength in the Lord and his plans, isn't it? I pray that Jonathan's intentions toward David would be, in fact, our intentions towards one another. 
members of First Baptist Church. I pray that we would seek to strengthen each other's hands in God. Strengthen each other's faith. That's basically what it means. Strengthen each other's faith in God so that we too would see God again in all of His strength, His power, His sovereign providence, His love and His grace and His presence in our need. So, that, so we would help each other once again know that God's people are in His care and that nothing will stop Him from fulfilling His good purposes for us in Jesus Christ. That right there is a great definition of the goal of Christian friendship and Christian discipling. That is what we seek to do here in friendship at First Baptist Church. Now, of course, we certainly don't do friendships perfectly. Nobody does. But we do seek, in fact, to do this, and we pray that we get better and better at it by the grace of God. In the terms of the staff, so the pastoral staff, and then also the elders, right? we want to try and facilitate these kinds of Christian friendships, these types of discipling relationships between members of the church, so that through, through life, amidst joyous times and difficult times, we would grow in knowing Jesus Christ, being found in Jesus Christ, right? This is why members of First Baptist Church, Jason, has been contacting you guys to see if there are folks who do not have significant friendships within the church. And our hope is to use that information to therefore make a stronger push towards practically connecting people for the sake of the gospel so that people's strength can be firmly rooted in Jesus Christ. Friends, you guys can help us do this, right? It's not just the pastors who are to do the work, but it's the pastors who are to equip the saints for the ministry, right? You guys can help us do this. Let me encourage you to move towards developing these types of relationships even now with the people here in the pews. If you know someone who could, in fact, use refreshing in the faith, let me encourage you to reach out to them. Ask them to meet up for lunch or coffee. Have them into your home for dinner. Share your testimonies. Remind each other of the grace of God in your life. Read and pray through the word of God together. That is how God guides us now. We can't just go around and and look for these prophecies as if God is going to speak to me directly and give me new revelation apart from the word of God. He's given us the canon, that is the rule of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. These books, as we mentioned last week, this is our guidance from God. Let me encourage you to do that. In church, it'd be great to pay attention, special attention to the folks who just became new members, right? We just took in four new members who recently joined the church, one of whom we get to have the opportunity to baptize, and upon baptism, then she will uh, go ahead and join the church. But friends, pay attention to these folks who are coming into the church. It can be easy to stick with those that we've known for years, right? It can be easy to stick with those we've known for years. Just think about if you started with us back in... Let's say, of course, this church was uh, founded basically in 1960, um, but uh, let's say you came when the church was only 10 people back in 2011, 2012, or something like that, right? A bunch of us joined the church then. Imagine if we just stuck with each other throughout the years, 2012, let's say, those five people, 2013, 2014, and if you're part of this group, I'm not, I'm not singling you out here, I'm just saying, let's just pretend what, what might happen, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. All the while, all of the other people who have joined the church are, are, are continuing to join, but they don't feel quite so rooted because they don't have the same history that some of us would. Friends, remember back, for those of you who might have had the experience of being blessed by having a mature Christian come alongside of you or having accountability from another person growing in the faith. 
If you've benefited at all from having that type of relationship, let me encourage you to turn around and seek to be that type of help to other people. Might it require certain navigation of current relationships? Yes. Might it require you to have certain conversations with those people? Yes. Does it mean you don't have to be friends with them? No, you can still be friends with them. But let me encourage you to try and figure out ways to bring people into your current friend group. And that way, more and more people can grow to maturity in Jesus Christ with those who are already mature in Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you to be that help for others. Again, we took in four new members, Chris, Wes, Allison, Joanne. Friends, now we have the opportunity to labor with them to strengthen their hands in the Lord and for them to do the very same for us. Friends, if you don't know where to start in terms of developing these friendships, let me encourage you to contact Jason, contact me, and we'll try and link you up with another church member so that you can be strengthened and so that you can be doing the strengthening in God so that his purposes would be fulfilled and that you would be more Christ-like. Not delivered from all of your trials, but more Christ-like in the midst of living in this sinful world. In terms of our main points here, that God or our big idea that God's people are in his care, that nothing will stop him from fulfilling his good purposes for them, the themes are highlighted and even they, they climax in a very ironic situation in chapter 24. So if you're thinking about the points of the sermon, point number one, God guides. Point number two, God delivers. Here's the third point. God proves that he does those things. God proves. And this is given in a climactic illustration in 24. This is what I mean. Despite Saul's attempt to have David delivered into his hand, right? Deploying all of those military resources so that he might crush David. Despite all of that, well, it's the Lord who delivers Saul into David's hands. And in a really humorous way, if you look there at verse 2, Saul is once again uh, told where David is. Eventually, Saul takes 3,000 of his elite soldiers ready to battle and crush David. And look there in verse 3. Look what happens. Right? They go down to capture him. Verse 3 says, And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. Right? This area was known for its caves, quite large caves. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, what he's doing is he's going to the bathroom. Saul, in all of his might... Has to use the bathroom, right? Nature calls, right? That's what he's doing there. But get this, right? It says there that David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of that very cave. And if you look there at verse 4, how do David's men interpret this, this event here? They think that God is giving Saul into David's hand in order that they should kill him. In order that David should kill him. Talk about God guiding, right? In all the chapters that we've seen so far, David has been on the run. Saul is using all of his might and power and intelligence to figure out where exactly he's expending himself. David's doing nothing but running away. And then here in this one cave, as Saul is using the bathroom, God hands him over to David. God guides Saul right to David. Verse 4, then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of his robe. Now, I don't know how this happens. But it does happen. Somehow, as Saul is taking care of his business, who knows, right? Maybe he removed his robe before he sat down or something like this. David makes a move and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, this was a big deal in the ancient Near Eastern culture. The tearing or the cutting of the fringe of the robe was actually a sign of disloyalty and rebellion. 
The cutting of the robe was a symbolic claim to the throne. And David knows it, which is why, look at verse 5, David is convicted. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. He has a very different perspective from his men, doesn't he? His men propose ambush and execution. But David knows that the timing of assuming the throne is not ultimately up to him, nor is it achieved by expediency or violence. Instead, it's up to his sovereign God, his perfect timing. It seems like he really was tempted to take the throne by violence. And it's clear what stops him, though. Saul is still the Lord's anointed. Though Saul was not going to be king for long, he was still, nevertheless, king over God's people. We see the respect that David has not only for God, but for the guy who is still king over God's people. Contrast that with Saul, who has no respect for God and no respect for the next king. David submits himself to the Lord. And what does he do? Look there in verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Still doesn't know that he's there. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord and King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against you, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look there, look at the familial language he uses. See, my father, he's a stepfather, or sorry, his father-in-law. See the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. You see there, he puts himself in actually great danger. For so long, Saul and all of his men were pursuing him, trying to kill him. But here, David bows down before the king and his 3,000 and here really just pleads with him regarding the truth. What humility found here in the passage. He just goes on. Verse 12, May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As a proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. He's basically saying, look, I'm not wicked. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? A dead dog. After a flea. May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and please plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. What humility in giving himself over to his accusers and those who seek his life, trusting the Lord to judge and even deliver him from Saul's hand here. Saul, uh, David, exhibits such great humility. You see the contrast there between Saul, the current king, and David, the future king? Saul, the man who rejects the Lord, and David, a man after God's own heart. Saul thinks he can battle against the sovereign Lord, but David submits to his sovereign Lord. 
Saul stops at nothing to kill David, but David, he refuses to kill kill God's anointed. Saul feels free to kill because Saul is ruled by his own law. David refuses to kill in this situation as a man who is ruled by God's law. Saul is a man unwilling to entrust himself to God and his judgment as God had already told him that he would not be king over his people for long and that he was not fit to be a king. But David, though, look at verse 12 again and see everything that he entrusts himself to as he entrusts himself to the Lord. Look at verse 12 again. May the Lord judge between me and you. He entrusts himself to the Lord who judges. He goes on there. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. He entrusts himself to the Lord who avenges himself, as the Lord is the avenger. And he's not shy about it at all. He states it right to Saul's face. May the Lord avenge me against you. He will do it. He will judge. But for me, my hand shall not be against you. That's humility and trust. David also entrusts himself to the Lord to deliver him from the hand of Saul. Verse 15, May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. You see there, it's obvious that David's hand was strengthened in God because of who God was, who God is. It's so encouraging to see this man, despite so much unjust suffering, it's so encouraging to see him entrust himself to the Lord the judge, the avenger, the deliverer, the sovereign. And of course it is encouraging. After all, David points to another king. David is a forerunner to another king, that is Jesus Christ, who suffered unjustly as well. I want you to turn over to 1 Peter. Turn to the book of 1 Peter. Again, if you're sitting next to somebody who isn't familiar with the Bible, you can help them get there. In the face of the madness of the people so determined to maintain their own way of life, you can think of the Romans who wanted political stability according to their own mind. You can think too about the self-righteous Jews who wanted to maintain their own self-righteousness. In the face of the madness of those people who crucified Christ the King, the righteous one, what does he do in such unjust suffering? Look there in verse 22. It says there, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see that? In it all, Christ was able to entrust himself to God because he knew that he was in the care of the Father. And that even in laying down his life before his very enemies like David, that God was able to raise it right back up again. And so knowing who God the Father was, as Jesus Christ was God the Son, eternal Son, Christ was able to remain faithful, faithful to carry out his mission to win salvation for all of his people. And it's encouraging to know that Christ left us this example, First Peter, that we should follow in his steps. And now he calls all of his people, to encourage one another in the faith, in the midst of trials and temptations. Of course, he knew that his church would face a number of trials and temptations, and so he gives us one another. Brothers and sisters, right here in the pew, 
in this very church, church members who have covenanted together to strengthen one another's hand in God and to remind each other that God is working out His good purposes and refining us in the faith and helping us trust in Him all the more. We do so by reminding one another of His guidance in the Word, right? That God is with us, that He is present with us to comfort, that He is so carefully refining our faith so that we might look more and more like Christ, as we heard from Romans chapter 8. When we struggle and suffer, we can remind each other that we are always in the hands of the great shepherd. And therefore, we can have confidence knowing that nothing will stop him from fulfilling his purposes for us in Jesus Christ. Friends, if you turn over in your bulletin to the, the, the lyrics in Before of God, you can imagine all of the attacks that were being thrown David's way by Saul and his men as they wanted to crush him, wipe him off the face of the earth. I wonder if you're experiencing accusation today, maybe even for all the good that you do, for being godly, for standing for God's righteousness and love and justice and mercy. Praise God that even in the face of such criticism and attacks and judgment, wrong words being thrown about you, we can go to Jesus Christ and know what? Know all of this. To know that despite accusations, we are pardoned before God. That we can stand before God because of the second verse there, the sinless Savior has died for me. My soul, therefore, is counted free, though you want to heap judgment on me, world, and those who accuse me. For God, the just and only righteous one, He has already satisfied His wrath because of Jesus Christ. And now He looks on me through Christ the Son and He has pardoned me. And so therefore I can have boldness with Him even though I might die as Jesus does. Even though I might be persecuted, laid to the ground, shed my blood, the voice of the martyrs join with their number Yet, one with himself, we can never die. Because just as Christ laid down his own life and took it up again, so we too will follow in his train, go into the grave, and Christ will raise it up again. My soul has been purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Friends, to conclude in the immediate, God did in fact deliver David from Saul's hand. In another interesting turn of events, Saul, in witnessing and experiencing David's goodness and righteousness, he halts his pursuit. And for a moment, for a brief little moment, Saul relents. It is fleeting. Just go ahead and read the rest of 1 Samuel. Saul witnesses his righteousness, and there in verse 17, You are more righteous than I, for you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. As David learns to trust all the more in God and his unstoppable will, we imagine David's ears must have perked up once again. His hand must have been strengthened in God once again as he heard what Saul said there in verse 20. Behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Saul's conviction here again 
It lasts but a moment. But he nevertheless verbally affirms God's divine purposes for David to be king. David already heard this. He heard it from the Philistines in 21 verse 11. Is not this David, the king of the land? David already heard it from Jonathan in 23 verse 17. You shall be king over Israel. And now David hears it once again from Saul who hunts his life. You shall surely be king. Of course, we know for sure that David will be king. But in this time where David moves slowly to the throne and certainly with trial and tribulation, we learn that with him, with God, those who trust in God are in his care and that nothing will stop him from fulfilling his good purposes for his people. And of course, friends, praise God, we see this most clearly in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and we recognize that the solid rock on which we stand is certainly not our own power or intelligence or ability, but it is on Christ the solid rock. We recognize as our closing song says and affirms, we recognize, Lord, that all other ground is sinking sand. Lord, we pray that every single time that we are facing trial and tribulation, every time that we are discouraged, even looking at our own sin, Lord, help us to see you again and your work through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sinners so that we might be rescued. We pray, Lord, that in the face of the beauties of the King, we would throw in our lot again with God. Lord, we ask that this would happen every single moment of our lives. Empower us as your people seeking to minister to one another. Empower us to encourage one another to look to the truths found here in Jesus and to see your sovereign power always at work for your good purposes in your people's lives so that your name would be glorified. We thank you for the story of history that we read here, for the history that we see in Jesus and your entire church. We thank you, Lord, that as you have promised, so you will make do. You will build your church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. We thank you that we can, in fact, trust in you. Root our hearts in you, we pray. In your name we ask, amen.